0: Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos in Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Dr. Loira Martel. Dr. Martel is a bi-coastal Puerto Rican who has several degrees, including one in veterinary medicine and a Ph.D. in theology. Dr. Martel pioneered the study of evangelical theology. Her research on Taino religious beliefs led to the publication of My GPS Doesn't Work in Puerto Rico, which I love the title, by the way, <laughs> on evangelical spirituality. She co-edited Theología en Conjunto, a collaborative Hispanic-Protestant theology, and more recently she co-authored the well-received Latina Evangelicas, a theological survey from the margins, in 2013. She currently serves as Vice President of Academic Affairs and Dean at Lexington Theological Seminary. Loira, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and to have this conversation with you.
0: Uh, Dr. Martel, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up?
1: Well, as uh, you said in the introduction, I'm actually bicoastal. And what that means is I was born in New York. Um, I was born in Manhattan. I was partly raised in Manhattan, partly raised in the Bronx. And. Um, and then I was taken to Puerto Rico, and, uh, and I lived for a time in Puerto Rico. In fact, I did my second grade in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. and uh, we, I, I fell in love with the place. And then my father decided to go into ministry, so we were hauled back to New York, um, <laughs> and I lived there for a time, and somewhere in my early years of high school, in fact, after my first year of high school, uh, because of something that happened, uh, my parents decided to move me back to Puerto Rico for my safety. Mm. And so mm. I completed my, my high school in Puerto Rico. I did my college in Puerto Rico. I, so for me, half my life was in, in, in New York and half my life I grew up in Puerto Rico. And that's why I describe myself as bi-coastal. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then I, I, I went to uh, Alabama, to Tuskegee University, where I completed my veterinary degree. But all that time, you know, like any student, I would go home for holidays and that that kind of thing. I was the kind of person that I spent uh, Thanksgiving on the beach. Mm-hmm. I, I know some people <laughs> jealous about that. I know. I'm jealous about that. I right. miss that.
0: <laughs> uh, out, you switched careers. Uh, tell me I about did. this change. Uh, what prompted you to become a pastor, and what was it like to be a female pastor in the '90s?
1: Well, I have to say, um, like I, I, everybody who asks me, you know, wh- what was it that moved you to to change? And I always have to tell people it was a sense of call, and it mm-hmm. was a growing sense of call. Uh, I I grew up in the church, of course. My father became a pastor. I was already you know uh, uh you know an older person by then i was in, in fourth grade or so when he made that decision but i have to tell you as a pk which a pastor's kid i mm-hmm. always swore that i didn't want anything to do with the pastorate and at a point like all the young people i became uh, somewhat rebellious of the church not of god but of the church so if you had asked me are you going to leave veterinary medicine, which was a lifelong dream of mine and my passion to go into the pastorate? I would have told you right there and then no,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but um, as I was practicing veterinary medicine, I was always very involved in the church. I was a Sunday school teacher, I was a youth leader, that kind of thing, and there was this growing this growing realization in me and because of things that people said to me in prayer and in other venues,
2: Mm. that I
1: knew that there was this growing sense of call. What I didn't know what the call was about, and, but I can tell you that all along I kept saying it wasn't to the pastorate. I wasn't being called to the pastorate. I just didn't know what. And so some people said, well, you're being called to a, mini- a missionary because you're a veterinarian, and it's, that's a natural <laughs> fit. You're going to be called out to the country where people are poor to heal their cows. That's what you're going to be called to. And and I would listen to them, and I you know, and I would ponder on these things very seriously. And somehow, something inside kept saying, "No, that's not it either." Mm. Uh, until a very wise woman said to me, a, a, a regional minister said to me, "You know, the fact that you keep saying I don't know just affirms to me the realness of your call. Mm. The veracity of your call is in the midst of the I don't knows." Mm. So it wasn't until I was already in seminary that it came to me that my calling was going to be in theological education, that I was being called to be an educator. Then the question was, what kind, what what field of theological education? And that didn't come until much later, that it was going to be in, in systematic theology. I fell in love with systematic theology. and And systematic theology, like veterinary medicine, has this diagnostic, intuitive kind of you know a, a prognostic kind of aspects to it that I just I just love it it impassions me but so I while I was in seminary there was a, a program called the Center for Urban Ministerial Education that was affiliated with uh Gordon Conwell in Massachusetts mm-hmm. I was studying in Massachusetts by then that asked me to come and teach for them and to be an adjunct for them. And I became their part-time staff, and I thought, yes, of course, because I'm being called to theological education. I'm being called to teach underrepresented uh, um, and struggling and oppressed communities. This is perfect because that's what this place does. And everybody thought I was going to just move naturally there to, to full-time, and suddenly I get called to New York to to pastor where my dad is pastoring as his an mm. associate. And everything in my head said, absolutely not. Work from my father? <laughs> Are you kidding me? No. And yet that is where God led me. And I thought that it was going to be for a year, and I ended up working there for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is where I, I came to the conclusion, that for me to be a good theological educator and a good theologian, I had to have a pastoral heart. Mm-hmm. And so God led me to the pastorate, because I needed to have that pastoral formation. And I needed to walk with my people at a grassroots level to experience what they experienced, to see firsthand what they lived through, to know what the issues were, because that was the only way I was going to be able to teach and write and talk with any kind of a sense of authenticity. And I have to tell you, I, I worked with young people. I've always worked with young people. And I used to love to take what I learned in seminary and take it to my young people. And, you know, it's like, it, you know how that saying, it doesn't play in Peoria? Mm-hmm. I would take stuff to them, and they would just challenge and say, are you kidding? That's not true. And they, w- we would have these back and forths, right? And that's where I began to to really pick up on what was authentic for our Nuestra gente mm-hmm. and what wasn't authentic it was in those conversations uh with my people and and after I, I pastored in the Bronx for almost fifteen years, I was then um pastored in a small church in Queens as an interim for four for four months so uh those experiences uh, i just you know they they forged my heart, uh, living in Puerto Rico as a veterinarian and working with poor people, taking care of their pets, also forged my heart. Mm-hmm. So all of these things have, have, have formed me um, it, it, as the person called that I am today.
0: Right. And this was in the 90s, correct?
1: Yes, um, yes. I, I actually started, uh, now you're going to call me an old lady. <laughs> I actually practiced veterinary medicine. I graduated in 1979, so I practiced veterinary medicine in the 1980s, mm-hmm. all the way up to the late 1980s, and then uh, switched over into ministry and, and theological, in the theological world in um uh in the uh in i i graduated in, in the late 19 uh, I'm sorry in in 1990 and so from 1990 through through the 2000s actually I was uh, in the pastorate and then switched over into into theological education in the early two thousand.
0: Mm-hmm. And th- so, tell me about this experience of being a woman pastor. That was not—I mean, that's <laughs> sadly not common now, right? It's not as common now, although we do see more female pastors. Uh, well, but what it, what was it like in the nineties?
1: Well, see, in, in Puerto Rico, um, there were a lot of models for mm-hmm. fe- for for, for um, female pastors. Um, so I think in Puerto Rico, we're almost ahead of the curve. Uh, but I'm an American Baptist, and I also worked in, in among disciples of Christ, uh, Christian Church disciples of Christ. And in Puerto Rico, there were a significant number of female pastors already in play in both denominations. So that's not strange to me. Um, um, and in, in New York, uh, there weren't as many American Baptists, but certainly there are. So, so none of that was strange to me. Um, What I did find out while I was pastoring in New York is that my father and I were probably the only father-daughter team in the Hispanic world, in American Baptist, in all of the states, Canada and Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And that took us aback. We did not know that we were making history. We were just just pastoring, right? Mm -hmm. We were just doing what God called us to be. Uh, did it have its challenges? Yes, it did. You know, the same way being a veterinarian. I was the first Puerto Rican woman to practice veterinary medicine in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And so the same challenges I met as a veterinarian, I think I met as a as a female pastor, right? People ask you um, imprudente questions mm-hmm. that I'm not going to mm-hmm. specify here, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, but they were interesting questions, and I would look at people and say, how do you even dare ask me these kinds of questions? But mm-hmm. people were really curious but, you know, I, I think that what gave me the opportunity as a, as a female pastor, and because it wasn't all that usual, is that it allowed me to do creative new things. And like Elizabeth, uh, the Reverend Elizabeth Condé-Fraser once told me, she said, I will do creative things, and people just say, oh, it's because she's a woman. It never occurs to them. It's because, no, it's because I'm a creative pastor,
2: right? Mm-hmm.
1: And so you, you, in a way, you almost get licensed to do creative things. And uh, so that's one one side of it. The other side of it, which the women in my church came to me one time and had a wonderful conversation with me. And they said, "We observe everything you do. We observe what you dress, how you walk, how you comb your hair, mm-hmm. how you cut your hair." And I and at first I was taken aback, but then I realized it's because they are seeing a role model mm-hmm. up on a pulpit in a way that they don't see role models in their jobs and in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm and 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 so, what they were doing is not that they were criticizing me it 's that they were being inspired and those very same women later on they were they were many of them were dropouts they went back they went back they finished their g d s they went on to college, and many of them today have master 's degrees
3: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, the women in my church. Uh, The average age of a grandmother was 36. Mm. The average age of a great-grandmother is now 55.
2: Mm -hmm. So
1: for me to tell you that I was a role model for them because I had finished college, because I had a doctorate, because I was going on to another doctorate, this was amazing to them. And that a Latina woman could do this. So they were inspired by that. And basically their statement was, if she could do it, so can we. Right. Right, And so uh, they inspired me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they thought I was inspiring them, but really they inspired
0: me. Absolutely. Uh, Do- Doctora Martel, your research is fascinating and so culturally rooted in the experience of being Latina or Latino growing up in the U.S. and in the Protestant church. Can you talk to us about your work on Evangelica spirituality?
1: Yes. So... Um, Uh, somewhere around, uh, I was already teaching in in Philadelphia, um, and I have to admit that I was a little bit burnt out, uh, and I needed some time to breathe. And so I I decided, I had gotten a small grant to be on a sabbatical, and I decided I wanted to do something on spirituality. But it seemed to me that everything that was written on spirituality had to do with the steps for spirituality, you know, that uh, it taught you what it was to pray and how to how many times to fast and mm-hmm. and you know how many texts of the Bible to read and 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 yet when I thought about spirituality from a theological perspective, it it wasn't in that way. I didn't want to I didn't want to write another book or or read another book on how-tos of spirituality. I wanted to understand why is it that we as Latina Evangelicas, why is it that we lived out our spirituality in the way that we lived it out, mm-hmm. and why did it mean to us the way what it meant? And I knew that it meant to us ways that it I didn't quite, it didn't quite resonate the same way it would resonate, say in a in a, in a dominant culture church, right? Um, but I didn't have language for it. And, I, and So I had a very intuitive sense about our spirituality. I just didn't have language for it. At the same time, I would read things uh, from our Catholic brothers and sisters like Maria Pilar Aquino and Virgilio Lizondo, who would say that spirituality was constitutive of our theology. And that resonated with me, and I would say, yes, that's true. But I couldn't point out exactly how that was true. You know what? What asked? What made it constitutive? Constitutive of our theologies. So, with that in mind, I, I got a grant and I decided to go to Puerto Rico and read up and think about and just uh, reflect on spirituality. While I was there, I started reading up on indigenous spiritualities. Mm. <clears throat> I decided to go to our roots, and and it fascinated me that as I started reading about Taino and Taino culture and Taino spiritual practices, I began to see the resonance with Evangelica, with Protestant um, spiritual practices in Puerto Rico mm. that, that that didn't come from Martin Luther or from San Juan de la Cruz. It didn't come from those sources, right? And and so that's where um, I began to reflect on it, and and that's where my article, my GPS, doesn't come from. Uh, doesn't work in Puerto Rico.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And the title of that came because, in reality, my GPS did not work in Puerto Rico. (laughs) Um, I I brought a GPS and and I started getting lost because it didn't work. Because wherever I saw, and I could see this physically houses, the GPS just showed swaths of blue as if there were just oceans there. But 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 whenever I would get lost, I would ask a person for directions and they would say to me, you know, if I asked for somebody here for directions, they would say to me, take uh, Route 4 and at the juncture of Route 4 and Route 65, cut a left. Mm-hmm. and You know, that's mm-hmm. how people give directions here, right? right? And in Puerto Rico, people would say... <laughs> Mira, usted ve esa, esa carretera. You see that road. You just follow that road, and it's going to curve this way. And they, they use their hands, right? It's going to right. curve this way. It's going to curve back. It's going to curve up. It's going to curve down. And at the bottom of the curve, you're going to see a palm tree. Take a left at the palm tree. And then yes. and go three palm trees down, and you're going to see a, a gas station. And, and God forbid that gas station should ever close. Take, and take a right on that, on that gas station. And under, after, after that gas station, you're going to see a, a man con Tito. it's going to be a, a, a <laughs> little drunk man sitting there two houses down from that that's your and and you know if you follow those directions you find
3: things mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and i began to reflect on that and i began to understand that part constitutive of our rea- of our spirituality is number one we don't measure time in the way that people in this country measure time
3: mm-hmm.
1: and number two we don't measure geography in the way that people measure geography. That the two things are, what we do is we measure relationship.
3: Mm.
1: So as I started reading about Taínos, I started, you know, looking at their practices, and, I started, and, and and indeed I started reading, I spread out and started reading about indigenous r- spiritualities in general, and came across this notion of place, That for them, history is not measured by time, but by place. And everything in me just jumped up. You know, I don't know if I have Indian blood or not, but I have to tell you, everything in me just jumped up and said, Gloria a Dios, hallelujah. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what led me to continue doing that kind of research. And that's where, you know, the G, my GPS doesn't work in Puerto Rico came out of, my chapter in, in my book on eschatology came out of, and so much of my writing is now in, uh, in, in influenced by just those insights. And, 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 I, and I'll say one more thing about that experience. Before I even started doing research, before I even started reading, before I started talking with anybody, I took a week. I, I spent two weeks in Puerto Rico that year. I spent a week just on a on a self-retreat
3: mm-hmm.
1: and remembering that when I worked in Puerto Rico, one of the reasons I didn't burn out is that about every three four or four months of, uh, of the year, uh, every three or four months, I would go into to El Yunque, which is a sacred space for us, mm-hmm. or to one of these places that used to be places where indigenous people lived. And I would just spend time there and take a day and breathe Mm -hmm. and come back renewed. And it was that insight that led everything else. Mm
0: -hmm. Earlier this year, um, Loira, I had the opportunity to hear you talk about your work on Latina Evangelicas. Can you explain, and I think I asked you this question, can you explain uh, the difference between Evangelica and Evangelical?
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's one of the reasons, there is a difference, which mm-hmm. is one of the reasons I don't translate. I could have written my book and chaptered and, and titled it Latina Evangelicals, and everything in me just grates against <laughs> even doing that, because it's, it, there are so different, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, evangelical in the United States has a very clear history. I, I I remember reading in a book uh, one author said tongue in cheek of course that evangelicals are everybody who follows Billy Graham mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, and that was a sort of short and and of course it was tongue in cheek but but there's a truism to that right mm-hmm. and I think that what the author was trying to say was there's a very definite religious theological uh, history and train and DNA in the evangelical world that, that denotes them to be evangelical.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But but my point is that in the States, evangelical has a definite theological, and I dare say political mm-hmm. position about it. Mm-hmm. When you say evangelical, there are certain connotations that come to people's mind. And in, in Spanish, when you say evangélica, it you don't have that that theological DNA. Mm. Evangelical doesn't necessarily mean Billy Graham, mm-hmm. and it certainly does not imply any kind of a political position. Right. So Evangelica in Puerto Rico just simply means Protestant, mm-hmm. and it, it comes from the root word, which is how the original word evangelical came from, by the way. And I think they've lost that root. But Evangelica comes from the root Evangelion, right, which is the Greek for good news. We were the people of the good news. In the case of Spanish, what it specifically meant was we were the people of the Bible. And and why we distinguished that was because when Protestantism came to the to to the to Latin America and to the Caribbean, Catholicism was. And this could be a stereotype, and if my Catholic brothers and sisters hit on me on this, they have every right to do so, because it was a stereotype, right? But it was understood that Catholicism in Latin America and in in the Caribbean, that Catholics did not read the Bible. Mm -hmm. The priests read the Bible to the people, but people did not have Bibles in their homes, so Protestantism comes in, missionaries come in, and the first thing they started doing was uh, giving people Bibles.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And for the first time, people had Bibles in their homes, and people started reading Bibles. So when people started converting to Protestantism, somebody would ask you in Spanish, ¿Eres católico or eres católica? And the answer would be, no, soy evangélica.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So so it was, Evangelica was used as a contraposition to Catholicism. Are you a Catholic? No, I'm a Protestant. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't, are you a, are you a Protestant in that, in that Reformation understanding of protest? Mm-hmm. It was, are you a people of the book? Mm-hmm. Yes, we are a people of the book. Mm-hmm. We are the people who read the Bible. Right. And but it has it has that history.
0: Right. And but, I, I was thinking, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, I was thinking no, 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 also no. the word uh, protestante, right? I think um in Spanish if you say that uh people are not don't understand it as well as or there's not a clear reference um as 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 good as saying evangelica, right? So right, right, uh, people don't right, describe exactly. themselves as soy protestante, dicen soy evangélico o evangélica, right? Right.
1: But here's another level. So so that's one layer of the meaning of Evangelica. Here's the other layer. The truth of the matter is that in in Latin America, uh, whether that be Puerto Rico or any other denomination, we have never really ever eliminated the roots from where we come. So when when Christianity in the form of Catholicism came to the island, Mm -hmm. supposedly they eliminated heathenism, Mm -hmm. i.e., indigenous spiritualities, African spiritualities, and they imposed Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Well, the truth of the matter is that they never did. What happened was that indigenous people and African people took Catholicism and they transmuted it. They they merged it with their own African and and indigenous beliefs, and they came up with popular Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And then Protestant missionaries came in, and they and they supposedly converted Catholics into Protestants. Well, they never really did. What what Catholics did is they transmuted their Catholicism that already had indigenous and and African roots, mm-hmm. and they merged it into Protestantism. Mm-hmm. So what we have is this this mestizo, this hybrid, this mix, this merge, this wonderful marriage of indigenous. African, Moorish, Jewish, Catholic, mm-hmm. Protestantism—that we call
3: evangelical—and
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so—and that's why I said it—it it doesn't even come near this this English thing that we call evangelical,
3: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. right? That comes from that comes from frontier, uh, conservative. Uh, dare I say, somewhat fundamentalist roots. <laughs> and ours comes from these, comes back, goes all the way back to Iberian Catholicism with its Moorish and Semitic roots. It mixes up and marriages with indigenous and African roots. And then we have this mixture of, of Pentecostals that come to the island and, mm-hmm. and Wesleyans that come to the island and, and Methodists that come to the island and Baptists that come to, oh my goodness, and all that. Is what we're calling today evangélicas. Right. So, uh-huh. I, you know, I think we're the richer for it, um, um, and I, you know, I, yeah, that that would be my statement. <laughs> yeah, I think that we're the richer for it, <laughs> and I think I think that that's why our tendency is to be more ecumenical in our in our in mm. our conversations, mm-hmm. at least at least at a theological. You know, level right. maybe not not always at a grassroots level, but at a more theological level, we tend to be more ecumenical because we understand this rich heritage that we carry in our in our blood and in our bones.
0: Right. In your book, Latina Evangelicas, the chapter on the Holy Spirit, uh, you and your auth- co-authors creatively and harmoniously identify the Holy Spirit as the wild child that leads mm-hmm. us in a bachata. Tell me about this. I really love this chapter by the way.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I think I think it's the chapter that most people have written me about uh, and resonated with and and I have to say at this point I want to give all props to cite Maldonado Perez, who's our, one of our, are the co-authors, mm-hmm. because really this chapter was originally assigned to her, and so she's the one who started off that chapter. I always tell my students, you will go to no other systematic theology book that will have a chapter that starts with the phrase "I love," because the very first <laughs> sentence in that that chapter is "I love the Holy Spirit," mm-hmm. right? And and it really was an expression of her and um, but but as she was writing the book, um Saida had uh threw her literally threw her back and she was ordered to bed rest for six weeks and we had a we had a deadline. So what we all agreed to was that we would each write a portion of the chapter and and she would write. She would keep her introduction, and she would and she would um, write the the conclusion, and she would smooth out the chapter. Well, you know what? I think it was of the Holy Spirit that we would write this chapter together, because it's the, been the most spoke, spoken about chapter. Mm-hmm. So the metaphor of the wild child is comes from Saida, and um, and that whole dancing of the bachata, and. Um, and, you know, I looked up bachata, I, I wanted to see, because I'm, I'm not necessarily a dancer, so I looked it up, and as I saw that, I thought, that's a perfect metaphor. Mm-hmm. It is a perfect metaphor. Because a bachata is a very intimate dance, right? Mm-hmm. And it has these this flowing to it and these motions to it. And uh, in and in theological language, I talk to my students about perichoresis, and I know that that sounds like a big word, But perichoresis comes from two words that one means to to interpenetrate and the other one means to walk around. And if you think about those two words in unison, to, to interpenetrate and to walk around, it comes to a bachata because you're very, very close together, and yet you're flowing about. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so, the 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 spirit is the one that that the whole the the, the Trinity is three persons who are one because they're in this very a close a perichoretic movement. And and the spirit is the one who invites us into the dance of the of, of God. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. here's this very intimate dance, and here's this. The spirit that breathes life unto us and, and has so much fun and is such a joy and is such an afieta and it says, Vente, vente para let let's join in the dance, <laughs> right? Molly Marshall says that the Holy Spirit is the one that opens up the, the Trinity and invites us to the dance. And so I think that, that uh, 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 uh bachata, it just brings more life into that. But the, but the metaphor of the wild child is all hers. And, and, and uh, Elizabeth Conde Frazier, my other co-author, and I just sort of picked up on that metaphor because we loved it so much. And what I love about that metaphor is that it reminds us that the Holy Spirit is not our property, and I think it's a mistake that we make in the Church so often, that we treat the Holy Spirit as our property. It is something that we possess, instead of thinking about the something that possesses us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is not something that we possess. It is not our property. Um, the, the, the Holy Spirit is a gift, but it is not ours, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, there's that tension it is a gift of love, but it is not ours. The same way grace is a gift, but it is not ours. It is always God's. And so Wild Child reminds us it is not ours to domesticate. It is not ours to own. It is not ours to dictate how the spirit moves, when it moves, and what, it, what she should be doing at any given moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, Loira, in your presentation um, this last uh, January, you said that, and I'm quoting here, evangélicas are acutely aware that the invitation is to dance in places of death, of absence, and of hopelessness in order to serve. How is this relevant to what is going on today at the border and in the treatment of immigrants and refugees in the U.S.?
1: So a couple of things I want to say. At a given moment, the patriarchs talked about the Holy Spirit as life-giver. Mm-hmm. And I love that. The Spirit is life-giver, Lord and life-giver. Um, we in the West have lost sight of that, of the Holy Spirit. Um, I just taught a course, that, that tit- and I titled it Holy Spirit, Neither Santa Nor Star Wars. <laughs> because I think sometimes we have reduced the Spirit to a gift-giver. Mm-hmm. Ben Espíritu Santo y Ramadones, right? So the Holy Spirit becomes Santa Claus, or we think of the Holy Spirit as our conscience, some force. You know, we get that from Augustine. It's the force that unites the son and, and the parent, or whatever. But the Holy Spirit is life giver, mm-hmm. right? Wherever we need breath, wherever we need, we need air, wherever we need oxygen, and where do we most need oxygen? In places where people are dying. If you look at the creation story, the creation story starts off with the Spirit of God is moving in the teom, in the places of deepest darkness. Um, um, uh, Karl Barth, at, at a given moment, said the following, The Spirit is the comforter who comforts where there is no comfort to be found. I think, he, I think he had the same insight that I had when I said those words to you. Mm. Um, where is it that we most need breath where there is death? Where is it that we most need life where there is death? Where is it that we most need comfort comfort where there is no comfort to be found? So where do we find the spirit? We find the spirit in those places where the forces of death want to reign, and think that they are supreme. And where do we find that today? At the border.
3: Mm.
1: Where where families are being killed. I, What's happening at the border is a slow genocide of brown and black bodies. Mm. Where we are telling people, you are not people, you are things, and we can, te podemos desechar como la basura de ayer. Mm. And here is where the spirit stands and says no no you are you are children of God um in Romans the um uh, uh you know, the, the Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to say Abba, Father, uh, to claim our, our parenthood in the, in the very divine who has created us. So it is in those places where they are being treated as garbage that the Spirit stands and says, No, these, this is not garbage. These are not refuse. This is not a crisis. These are my children. These are the children of the living God the other piece is that um is that um uh uh there's a, an author called uh uh Nicholas de Genova and Nicholas de Genova uh, speaks about um uh, the freedom of movement, and he starts off with the notion that freedom of movement is a a human right, and he wants to argue against that because he says if you are in liminal places like the border, there is no one to defend human rights, so the the issue of human rights becomes a moot point. He says, "I want to argue that freedom of movement is an ontological uh, reality it is part and parcel of our being human. We by the fact that we are human, we already have the absolute right to freedom of movement, and no one can take that from us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In an article that I wrote, I, I go beyond Nicolas de Genovo, and I say the following in the Bible, wherever the spirit blows there is movement. At creation, there is movement, and things are created because God breathes. Psalm 104 says that everything breathes because God breathes. And if God were to withhold God's breath, everything dies. So everything moves because God breathes. So freedom of movement is not an ontological imperative, as De Genovo would argue. It's a pneumatological imperative. It's a divine imperative. And to stop people at the border is the most profound sin against the spirit that anyone can can do.
0: Loira, thank you for that insight and, and for those words. Um, Is there anything else uh, that you would like to add about your current research or your work in Kentucky?
1: Well, my work in Kentucky is um, shaping up to bring me surprises. I see the spirit blowing here. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm seeing new opportunities. I wondered if I was going to be able to reach out to underserved communities. As I said to you, that was the beginning of my call. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm seeing those opportunities open up here as well. So I can speak to the dominant communities about underserved communities, and I'm seeing resonance, and I rejoice in that. But I'm also seeing the opportunities opening up to serve uh, underserved communities, and I rejoice in that as well. In terms of my research, I continue to look into how can I do theology that makes a difference about issues like what's happening at the border. Mm-hmm. Um, how can I do research about mass incarceration? I serve on the National Council of Churches. We are now going to start a new imperative on racism So how can I talk about racism in ways that uh, we can move beyond this, I do this act and because I do this act, I'm a racist or I don't do this act and because I don't do this act, I'm not a racist. I think that's a very reductionist way to talk about racism. We have to think about racism as a structural reality. Um, What makes people racist or not racist is not what they do, but the very fact of power and privilege that they exercise, whether they're aware of that or not. Mm. And we need to start talking about racism in those kinds of structural ways. So how can I contribute to that conversation in constructive ways as a theologian uh, that can help people move beyond the yelling at each other? The other piece for me is recently, and I don't know if you've heard me say this, we have begun to tear apart the fabric of the public square. We don't know how to be at the public square and speak indifference, not indifferently, but in difference, in our different places, in our Mm -hmm. different tongues, in our different cultures. We don't know how to do that anymore. And so uh, we are fracturing the public square. How can we as theologians, as people of God, as church, how can we model for the world how to speak indifference in the public square how can we contribute to the healing of the public square because once we get beyond where we are today people are going to look back and are going to look to to go back to that public square and it's going to be so fractured there's not going to be a place for them to go to and so i think that the church is is going to be a good tool to help people go back to that place. We are going to be the healers of the public square. But if we don't know how to do that in the church, we won't be able to do that for the world. Mm. So how can I as a theologian contribute to that conversation? So that's that's where I'm at. Um, as for my work, I, I I will start, I will end the way I just started. I am listening to where God calls me. God called me out of the Campos de Puerto Rico (laughs) and out of my passion of healing uh, sick animals and their herding owners. That passion has not let go. I maintain my licenses, by the way. Uh, I never stopped being a veterinarian, and I never stopped being that young woman who dreamed of being a veterinarian. I'm not any less that person. But I'm also a person who knows that that Being a veterinarian was a gift of God. And so when God said to me, go, I went. And when God said to me, go to Kentucky, I came. Mm -hmm. So I'm still listening to the Lord. Where is it I must go next? And so as Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm at right now.
0: Great. Doctora Martel, thank you so much for this conversation.
1: Thank you for the opportunity, uh, Dr. Fullis. It's been an honor to meet you and to have these conversations with you.
0: A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima.